Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 9th, 2011, and my guest is Darren Asimoglu, the Elizabeth and James Killian Professor of Economics at MIT. Darren, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks very much for having you back, Russ. Now, you recently made a presentation on the financial crisis and the role of inequality, and inequality is often invoked as a potential uh, explanation for various crises. I think sometimes the evidence for that is a little bit weak. But you were criticizing some of that work, uh, particularly you're criticizing or at least providing an alternative to an argument put forward by Raghu Rajan in his book Fault Lines. What is Rajan's argument and your uh, alternative? Well, I mean, let me first start by saying that uh, I think uh, uh, Raghu Rajan is one of the uh, most creative and accomplished economists of uh, his generation and, and somebody I always learn a lot from and uh, and 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 he always uh, comes up with interesting ideas and this is this is this is no exception and i think he has actually come up with a very rich uh, analysis of the financial crisis and its implications and causes in his uh, book fault lines and and uh, and one of the ideas or uh, one of the lines of argument in that in that book has attracted a lot of attention and 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 it uh, it is a very creative and interesting argument that some other people have also Kind of uh, supported or, or 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 expressed in somewhat different forms, and I think it's uh, it's uh, to me it sounded like an intriguing hypothesis, and it made me think of uh, uh, related uh, related ideas, and sort of also why perhaps I am not fully convinced by this idea, and I guess uh, this is what uh, I've tried to uh, argue in. Uh, in a, in a presentation in, in in the American Economic Association in Denver uh, last month, and uh, and so uh, so let me start with uh, with Rajan's uh, hypothesis. I mean, I think it's uh, essentially Rajan takes uh, takes off from uh, a well-established literature in labor economics, uh, which uh, which r- relates uh, aspects or parts of the increase in inequality in the labor market which has risen quite considerably over the last 30 years, to technological developments, in particular uh, things such as uh, information technology, robotics, uh, new organizational forms that have increased the demand for uh, more abstract uh, skills, more skilled workers. And, uh, and, and, and the general consensus is that this combined with a perhaps slower increase in the supply of skills in the last uh, 20 years or so than, uh, than the U.S. had experienced before uh, led to a relatively sharp increase in the college premium and also a relatively sharp increase in the overall uh, inequality in the labor market, for example, measured by such things as the gap between those who are at the 90th percentile of the earnings distributions 
those, you know, the the the, the richest top ten, so so to speak, versus the bottom ten percentile, the bottom ten ten percent, and that gap has increased a lot. Or or if you kind of look at other measures such as you know Gini coefficient or standard deviation of wages or earnings or family incomes, they have similarly. Increase. I mean, there is a debate in labor economics whether you know what's the role of technology, what's the role of trade, and and so on. But but most most economists are are sort of comfortable in thinking that you know technology has played a leading role here. Trade has probably played quite a major role too, but intermediated by by technology, so that you know it's mostly it's not the kind of the trade in goods of the 1980s and so on, uh, but it's the kind of offshoring uh, and, uh, and, 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 and outsourcing of jobs that has been intermediated by, again, information technology of the late 1990s and 2000s that's probably played a role. And then there is a debate about what's the role of uh, institutional factors such as, you know, the, the, the demise of unions and, uh, and, uh, and the minimum wage and so on, and, and, and that's, that's still not entirely settled. But... but uh, but 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 taking this consensus as given, uh, you know there is this uh, you know largely exogenous increase in inequality goes the argument, and but this exogenous increase in inequality or technology driven increase in inequality has created tensions in the political system because uh, part of the uh, U.S. population is seeing its income. Uh, rise rapidly, another part is stagnating or or not seeing the same kind of gains, and there has been an increase an, 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 an increased pressure on the political system to do something about this problem, so to appease the bottom of the distribution that's not gaining from this increase. Now, in different versions of the argument, uh, I've 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 seen uh, uh, articulated. It's sometimes about appeasing the bottom, but you could also equally tell the story about, say, appeasing the middle. So if you look at what's going on to the top of the income distribution, 90th percentile, and, say, the middle, the median earner in the United States, that's also increasing. So you could, you could tell a story that inequality is increasing and the middle guys are feeling unhappy because they're not uh, seeing the same gains, to the same extent of gains as the top guys uh, in, the, in the 90th percentile. And that's why... Uh, that's why the political system had to respond. And the political system uh, in, 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 in Ragu's story responds in the cheapest possible way, per, and, and perhaps uh, there might be other reasons why it responds in this way, but it essentially encourages uh, government-sponsored enterprises, uh, the, the likes of Fannie and Freddie, to provide cheap credit to the uh, to the to the bottom of the income distribution, or perhaps to the middle classes who wouldn't have otherwise been able to afford houses at subsidized and perhaps oversubsidized rates, and and this political response then lays the groundwork for the financial crisis, where there is a housing boom because too many people who sh- who were at the bottom and who didn't really have the uh, purchasing power to really buy houses are buying houses, and then you have the housing bubble, and then the housing bubble is the source of what's going on. And uh, when the housing bubble crashes, it you know everything comes tumbling down. So that's kind of in a in a nutshell is the is is is, is one part of Rajan's uh, Rajan's thesis. Now, last week we had on uh, Tyler Cowan talking about the Great Stagnation. 
and um, I, I expressed some skepticism about the median income numbers. But whether those are right or not, um, it's certainly true that measured inequality has has grown. If you compare, say, 90th or 95th or 99th percentile to the 50th, of course, I'm, I've always wondered how much people are aware of that if they don't read the New York Times. You know, as a generator of political um, uh, demand, maybe it's a supply argument that that has to be made. But as a demand factor, I don't, I don't really think that the average person sits around thinking that that there's all these other people doing much better. I mean, our, our access to that, our, our the, the tangibility of it's very weak, it seems to me. So I've never been persuaded by that as a. Well, that's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think people people do draw relative comparisons, and 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 we have a very globalized media market, so it's hard to imagine that you know uh, people living in uh, the inner city Detroit uh, or you know uh, Nevada don't really know that uh, you know there are parts uh, of the country where. Incomes are increasing and people are living much more comfortably. You know, people in Nevada probably know that uh, the the richer neighborhoods in California are 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 are, are prospering and 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 so on. But 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 I I, I mean I I would that's that's just a guess. I I wouldn't I wouldn't know for sure. But it's you know if you think about it, right? Following the financial crisis, for example, I mean a lot of people have been very acutely aware that you know the her burden of the crisis has not been equally borne, and you know, uh, you know, both on the left and the right, there is a lot of talk of, uh, you know, uh, the the bankers are not having their pays, uh, uh, they're still having very very high salaries. No and doubt about that. And so on and so yeah, forth. no doubt about that. And I think people are very aware of it. It's actually, if anything, it's fascinating to me how little uh, politicians of a populist stripe have exploited that or tried to. Um, right. It's fascinating. Um, I have a sinister, a sinister theory of that, which we may get to later when we talk about the banking and financial sector. But let's go on. So, so that's Rajan's idea, mm-hmm. and you're going to give me an alternative as well as some an argument that that the data better explain your idea. So, go ahead with that. Right. Yeah. So, so, so I guess uh, I guess the alternative that I would put on the table, uh, and, and and I think other people have uh, have 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 sort of suggested similar things. So I would definitely not claim, you know, sole authorship of this at all, but is that, you know, if you think of the Rajan story is that politics is just a response. It's, it's just an intervening, intervening channel, whereas, you know, uh, for understanding the financial crisis, it might be that politics was much more of a driving force, that, that it might actually have been that it was politics acting as sort of an autonomous Force, and I'll try to explain what I mean by that in a second, really shaped the state of finance and the financial industry in the United States, especially over the last 25 years or so. And developments in the financial industry then caused both the financial crisis and also, through related processes, part of the inequality that we observe in the United States. And and here I should just uh, take a moment to explain what I mean by that, is that I think there is a difference between what I'm going to call labor market inequality, which is what I think Rajan is talking about, 
and top inequality. And by top inequality, I mean how much do the people in the very, very, very top of the income distribution in the United States earn relative to the rest of the population? So, for instance, the people who are the top 1% or top 0.1% of the of the U.S. population, uh, the really highly, very, very highly paid CEOs, many of whom I'll say in a second more uh, in more detail, happen to be in the financial industry, uh, but of course there are also some in the entertainment industry and so on. But uh, yeah, it's a pretty that top. You know, obviously, it depends how you define it. The top one or point one percent, whatever you call the the upper crust, there, uh, it's a pretty diverse group of business executives, lawyers, right. surgeons, basketball players, right. entrepreneurs. Right. Um, those those would be the I would think the big the big groups. And of course, some right. of those are not very many people in them, and some there's actually there's not very many people in any of those. By definition, because they're at the no, very not top. Not many of the, people, but yeah. but finance has become much more overrepresented in in that uh, in that tranche than it had been before. And I will we'll talk a little bit about some some work that other economists have done, which kind of provides some some evidence consistent with that. Uh, so so so, but the top inequality. So the reason why I'm drawing this distinction between say, labor market inequality and top inequality is that I think we, we have a fair, you know, there's no consensus as I just expressed, but there's a fairly detailed work uh, on what causes labor market inequality, what causes the difference between, say, college graduates and high school dropouts, between postgraduates, people with MBAs, the regular MBA folk, and people with uh, just a college degree, or the 90th percentile relative to the 10th percentile. There is much less work about what's going on at the, what are the causes of the explosion of inequality at the very top of the distribution, and for, for good reason. There's a little bit. The superstar literature is... Right, is, there is, but not, not empirical. I mean, so there is a very good reason for that, which is that uh, the, the, the usual data sources that people use for this, like, long-term inequality trends... Uh, you know, the uh, current population survey or census data, they're all top-coded, which means that they don't, they, they, they tell you accurately what's going on at the 90th percentile, but not much more above that, because, you know, there's a certain uh, level above which, you know, your, uh, you know, your, your income is, is, is not revealed in those it's, data yeah, sources. Meaning it's 100,000 or more. But you don't know how, how much or more. more, or a million or more. But you don't know how but, much more. But we don't we don't mm-hmm. see Bill Gates's income in that in the census or the CPS, even at the, if he was one of the people who was in the five uh, percent sample. So so for that reason, you know, uh, we we are we are. That, that's the reason why the labor literature hasn't focused as much on those people. The recent research that I'll talk about in a second by. You know, Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez uses IRS data uh, to look at some of the trends in, in, in exactly that part, and that, I think, is the most important research on this area. But it doesn't have the same sort of uh, uh, richness as the, uh, as, the, 
as the as the as the current population survey or census data. So, so it's it's uh, it's 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 harder to know who exactly these people are, what their level of education is, uh, what exactly what industry they're working on, and and so on. Okay, so carry on. Uh, so. So, 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 so. Therefore, so talk, about, you know, talk about top inequality. Then, what's driving it? That's, that's right. So, so, so. Therefore, this, this. Uh, the, the, I think that the uh, one important point is that uh, you know we have to distinguish between inequality and top inequality. It might well be that it's exactly the same factors that cause uh, the rise in inequality that are also at the root of the. Spectacular increase in top inequality, but but there are reasons to, for thinking that that's not the case. I mean, so let me let me be a little more explicit about it. I mean, uh, you know, we've had a very fairly fairly large increase in overall inequality in the United States. Uh, if you look at what's going on with the college premium, if you look at what's going on with the things that I've mentioned, like the uh, the ratio of the 90th to the 50th or the 90th or the, to the 10th percentile of the earnings distribution or the hourly wage distribution, but but we're talking still, you know, things that are not out of uh, uh, out of all historical precedents. So, you know, uh, you know, certainly we are more unequal now than any time before, uh, any time since World War II. But the levels of inequality that we're seeing in the in the labor market, you know, are are, are certainly not comparable to what what's going on in, in in labor markets in Latin America, or or even you know, uh, our our best data would suggest that these are not out of line with things that were uh, that were uh, that that U.S. experienced in the in the early 20th century. So, for instance, uh, just to give you. Just to give you an idea, you know, if you look at the, uh, you know, uh, gap between uh, uh, between uh, the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile, you know, that has really very, very sharply increased in the 1980s, uh, and. And sort of stabilized a little bit later in the in the 1990s, increased again in the in the in the late 1990s, and so on. But 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 it's it's again, as I said, it's 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 in line with 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 historical historical. It's, it's not out of line with the historical trends if you look at the entire 20th century. The what's going on? What's going on with the top inequality is is, is rather remarkable, and I think I think we we probably haven't seen anything to this extent. Uh, because of uh, because of exactly the composition of who is in the top inequality and the extent of the increase in top inequality. So, for instance, Piketty and Saez uh, data from the IRS. So that's sort of uh, uh, likely to be fairly uh, fairly accurate, as well as you know, uh, reporting to the IRS is accurate. Obviously, one could yeah, one could worry about certain things there. Not Sorry, I like the word fairly. Yeah, yes, yes. So, it's somewhat accurate. There's <laughs> somewhat some information accurate. there for sure. Uh, so, in the 1970s, you know, the top one percent of the earners in the United States captured about ten percent of all national income in the United States. In the late 2000s. That number rises to almost twenty five percent, so close to twenty five percent. 
So that's a kind of a remarkable number that 1% of the population is capturing almost a quarter of all national income. Now, again, if you go back to the Gilded Age, you'll see numbers that are not dissimilar to this. Again, we have much less, much, much less reliable data. But what's remarkable is the other fact that Piketty and Saez document about these people is that these, you know, the top 1% used to be rentiers. They used to have their money from capital. So they used to own buildings and, and, uh, uh, Flip coupons, and, and, they and, had bonds and. Yeah, yes, 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 bonds and, and, and it probably inherited from their family and expanded that money, uh, and so on. And now, over time, these mega earners have become much more like you and I, W2 earners. So that's the, that's kind of the remarkable thing here, which is sort of unprecedented. And, and I think it's difficult to think how, you know, sure, for Michael Jordan, we can see what, you know, what the skills that are, that were so unique about him that made him such a superstar and, of course, everybody wanting to pay tons of money to watch him. And the and technology, and the technology, and the technology that made it possible for and him the technology to technology that made it possible that we just had him broadcast yeah, all over the yeah. world, and uh, you know, millions around the world can watch him play. And uh, so his and shoe that, contract that, is worth more. And right, yeah. Though that's that's certainly uh, that's certainly undoubtedly part of it. Uh, but but I I think it's also difficult to think that this is just an increase in the demand for skills. And that there must there must be other organizational changes in society and how we organize different industries and how we incentivize people that have also changed. And I'm not saying that, you know, they have changed for the better or for the worse, but obviously the way that we kind of treat the CEOs have changed over the last 30 years. And certainly how we provide incentives to people uh, who are in, in top management or in important positions in, for example, the financial industry have changed. And, and you know, options and bonuses is, 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 is one part of it. But, but I think, uh, but I think it's, 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 it's a general sea change. And, and this is where I, I kind of uh, hinted at some other research that was sort of uh, uh, relevant for this. is this interesting work by... Uh, Thomas Philippon at the uh, uh, New York University and Ariel Reshef. And, and what, what they show is that during precisely this period, starting from the 1970s, there is just a remarkable explosion in the wages in the financial sector relative to the, to the, to the rest of the economy. So, uh, so, so all of those sort of are kind of suggesting that by all means, finance is not the only sector where uh, there is kind of uh, there is much uh, there is a concentration of high earners, but but finance is playing a disproportionate role in uh, in, in in the top one percent, and uh, and the top one percent are not the same kind of people who were. Uh, 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 who were the top one percent in the 1960s or or, or 19, 1970s? But but they're much more uh, people who are kind of being remunerated for the work that they're doing 
in either finance or, or, or in other kind of uh, high-pay industries so this of, is, of the United States. So this is an empirical question, obviously, and it's yep. not easy to get an answer to. We do know that the profit, profitability of the financial sector was extremely high in the uh, right. 80s, 90s, and, and, and noughts. We know that's Absolutely. true. Uh, we can probably get some in pretty good evidence about actual numbers, right? Because we have a lot of these firms are publicly traded. Mm-hmm. We have some idea of what's, what to me is the, the most chilling part of the financial sector's success, uh, besides the fact that I don't think it was very productive, and I think there are reasons for that. But the, the other chilling part is the, no, the sheer number of people other than the CEO who made enormous sums of money. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So, yes, and we can absolutely. we can count we can get an idea roughly. I don't know if anyone's done it, but you could probably get a count. Yes. And I, I want to stress: I'm not against people making lots of money. I'm against people right. making lots of money for unproductive reasons using my money uh, without right. my w- consent. Right. No. No. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think that's another we'll get to that. of the discussion <laughs> yeah. that needs to be that needs to be had more generally. Is uh, you know, do we feel you know? Do we feel that, and, and here feel is the right word because we just don't have the empirical evidence to back this up, but do we feel based on the empirical, uh, empirical facts that we have and the theories that we have that a, uh, a software entrepreneur who has invented a new product that's uh, being used all around the world and is making a billion dollars is contributing the same amount as somebody who made some great trades on... Uh, 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 you know, uh, on some derivatives and, uh, and 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 is getting a billion dollars of bonus. Well, the so, standard you, know, you have to make some social. You know, you might you might want to kind of think about. You know, what is the what is the society getting from these two people that are getting the same type of reward from the society? Yeah, the standard argument, which I'm unpersuaded by, but uh, it's tempting, and I used to make it myself. I'm ashamed to say. The standard argument as well, the people on Wall Street, they're allocating capital and allocating capital through these kind of trades and arbitrage and efficiencies. I mean this is hugely valuable. It's true you can't see it directly, but nothing's more important for capitalism than allocating capital. The problem with that argument is is that when you allocate trillions of dollars towards housing, you've clearly made a horrible blunder uh, that we haven't – we got some benefit from it. Most of it was uh, very small relative to the costs. And I believe that was not a natural market process. It was a destructive one engendered by bad policy. Right. So, I mean, I think, I think it's exactly what you're saying uh, in, in the big picture, which is that I think it's very difficult to know, and there are different types of arguments. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think this is, this, is, this is an area that would really require uh, some very creative new research strategies because it's very difficult to measure the social value of any activity because most of it gets realized in very complex ways. But, but I actually believe that allocating capital is a very, very important thing. And if anybody was playing a role in making sure that that capital allocation took the right form, that would have a very high social reward. No doubt. Now, the question that is in my mind, and I will not pretend to know the answer, is whether when you are making money on short-term price fluctuations, that whether that actually is essential for getting the long-run prices that are more important for the allocation of the trillions of dollars, 
whether it, it helps us get those prices right. Well, I think it so would. In other words, I think it'd know, be important if it, the prices were right. The question is whether they were induced to be drastically right, no, wrong. No, so that, that's, that's exactly. So that's exactly the point. The point is that you know we we like people who do arbitrage to some degree because they they try to pre- you know they they help prevent prices being out of whack. But you know what what the prices that we really worry about being out of whack are the long run prices, not the short run prices. So you know if uh, if IBM stock trades for three hours 10% more than it should, that probably doesn't create a disaster for the U.S. economy. Now, I'm, I'm not saying it, this is true, but one line of reasoning. Yeah. But you can make millions of dollars from that three hours of mispricing. And that, I guess, is the question, is how much of the money that investment banks are making uh, is due to short-run fluctuations in price that don't really have all that much to do with the long-run allocation of capital. Well, and then, of course, there is a top, uh, the question that you've kind of posed, which is that then this whole process and through variety of political channels that it interacts with might also help get the prices wrong rather than right. Yeah. For example, the prices of housing, as we've kind of yeah. already been hinting about. Well, let, me, let me suggest a different empirical way to think about this and get your reaction. Uh, In the venture capital world, which is centered around a handful of places in the United States, but I'm going to put it – it's in Texas. It's in Massachusetts. It's in California. Mm -hmm. But most – a lot of it's in California. So let's think of it as California. And we have Wall Street, which is mostly in Wall Street, mostly in New York, although there's some in London and other places around the world. But let's contrast uh, New York investment banking with California venture capital investing. If you're a venture capitalist – you have a fund. You have, you make some bets. By definition, uh, it's hard to do. We we understand this. Uh, maybe three out of ten uh, go broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, four or five out of ten uh, are mediocre, and there's two or three that make you wealthy. And if those two or three are successful enough, that makes up for the losses and the mediocrity. Mm-hmm. If you consistently pick badly, either by bad luck or stupidity, you end up with no money. And you don't get to allocate capital anymore from the people, either your own money or from people who trusted you with it. And similarly, if you come up with a good idea, it might not work out. Things go wrong. But it's well known in California that failures get a second chance often if their second idea is really good or if they showed fortitude or other sets of skills. But eventually, if you continually start companies that fail with other people's money, you go out of business and you lose. And you have to go find a a productive way to to feed your family. But on Wall Street, what has happened in the last 25 years is that if you do really stupid things and you lose a lot of money for your firm, you keep going. You make a lot of money. You don't make as much as if you made all good decisions, but you make an, an immense amount of money, hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes. And as an individual, hundreds of millions of dollars, even though you destroyed your company and you can stay in the game. So something is drastically wrong. And you're doing it not with your own money, but with other people's money. You know, the question would be, well, why would people continue to give them money? Just like we could ask a venture capitalist who continually funds losers, well, after a while, he doesn't get any money to, to spend. But in Wall Street, you can keep getting money for a while from you and me, uh, other special uh, – the Fed helps you out. It, it's, uh, it, it's clearly inefficient. It's disastrously inefficient. 
Well, I mean, I think uh, I mean, I think uh, I don't know enough about the uh, career paths of, uh, of of traders and uh, and 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 high level finance executives, but you know, you know, I mean, I think uh, from what I've what I can what I've read and what I understand is, of course, if you are successful, you get much bigger bonuses. And if you're not successful, yes, you lose your job. And, you know, I, mean, I, think, I think it's not as if you make, uh, you know, millions of dollars if you are consistently unsuccessful. But I think the problem in some sense is that in such a risk-taking environment, even if the story was much less bad than what you just put, which is that I, may, I get a cut of the enormous profits I make if I make profits. And if I don't make profits, then I go home with my salary, or I take another job with a reasonable salary. So I make I make I make the sort of sort of money that an engineer would do in a respectable company. That already creates terrible incentives. That already creates terrible incentives because you know you don't bear the downside of the losses, and you can make you know humongous amounts of money by being successful in the risks that you take. So, so it perhaps may not be as bad as what you just said, but it's still the incentives are just awful. And you're talking about you know, the traders. That's an interesting uh, subcategory of, of, of folks worth I'm thinking about. Yeah. I'm, I'm really thinking about the executives. Right, that, I mean, some of the executives are, 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 are you know, well, because they have golden parachutes and uh, they can go and run another company if they're not so successful. And because their success is hard to judge because it's such a complex job, correct. I think the issues are even more, 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 uh, more problematic in that, in that respect. As you well, said, I, yes. I think it's a very interesting empirical issue. And I, I know Bebchuk and I think it's Span have done some, yep. Yep. some nice work on this showing how much, how much the uh, folks gained even when their, their, um, their firms did badly. Right, exactly. And, and we could actually get – I think this is a – for those out there listening who are – uh, graduate students, this is an interesting case study opportunity to gather some information about uh, the magnitudes of these things. But let's let's go on. So it's part of it's an empirical question about, right, I mean, about I, I, magnitudes. I think, I think that's very important. Let me kind of uh, underscore that. I mean, I mean, I think I think there are a lot of things that we're 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 all talking about. I mean, there's a large number of economists here talking about these issues, and but we are we have to kind of. Uh, extrapolate on the basis of limited data and 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 I think you know economists generally look down upon uh just data collection but but I mean I think uh you know if you think of uh, Piketty and Sias's work which was mostly a data collection and and data analysis and it's been amazingly useful amazingly uh socially valuable provocative. and uh, and provocative and 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 I think there is really you know finding good data sources to answer kind of Really important questions is, is one of the one of the one of the things that people can do very very productively, I think. And there are a lot of open questions there. Again, I think just the back of the envelope calculation, we have a pretty good idea. We have a very good idea about salaries in the major professional sports. A pretty good idea about movie salaries. You know, actors how much they make roughly at the highest level. We have a very good set of information about CEOs and. Executives of publicly traded companies. We don't have very good information about law, uh, no. law people in in high profile partnership, you know, partnerships. That would be an area where you know something like the tobacco settlement that enriched a very small number of people an immense amount uh, is harder to get at. But some of that might be public too. I don't know. So there, there's a there's a digging and and uh, compiling project there for a creative person. Absolutely. Yes, uh, that's absolutely, absolutely. So, so carry on. So, so 
taking this slightly more depressing uh, path towards top inequality that that, yeah, um, so, so the, more, the more depressing top, uh, path towards top inequality, so then let's cut to the chase, uh, since, uh, since we don't want this to go on forever. So this, uh, the, the, the more depressing, so the Rajan story is fairly depressing. <laughs> but in the Rajan story, political responses just are responses and that's it. So the more depressing one is that, you know, there was a political process that led to certain types of distortions in the financial industry. And those distortions then both laid the seeds of the financial crisis because they encouraged the wrong type of risk-taking and also in the process made a lot of money for those people taking risks while those risks were still hadn't, hadn't turned south yet. So that's the story in a nutshell. It's a very simple story, and I think it's, as I said, many people have, uh, have, have sort of, uh, have sort of uh, written about it, and uh, so talk about the in, in your presentation. You talked about the the political science literature that correlates, uh, unfortunately, uh, giving to politicians contributions to politicians with policy outcomes that benefited, right. say, the housing industry. Right. So, so, so if you kind of compare uh, Raghu Rajan's hypothesis. To the alternative hypothesis that I just laid out, you know, there, there, politics is very important in both of them, and I think again, Raghu deserves a lot of credit for kind of putting uh, a bunch of uh, really important, interesting ideas on the table. But politics plays out very differently in the two stories. In the Rajan story, the political responses come because politicians are somehow responding to the discontent of the bottom of the distribution, or in response to my comments, Raghu said, well, perhaps it's not the bottom, but it's the, it's the middle of the distribution. Whereas in the story that I suggested, politics is playing out by responding to lobbying campaign contributions and in otherwise the ability of the already well-off and already well-organized to influence and, uh, and, 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 and guide the political process. So it's not, here, it's not technological change, it's institutional it's technological change. technological it's change, the, it's, the, it's the good old technology that people have known for centuries, uh, you know, money begets you power. It's, uh, it's, I cite it from, uh, from, from, from Marcana. Marcana, uh, the ni- 19th century, right? 19th century, uh, yes. Uh, he was, uh, he was uh, McKinley's uh, campaign manager, and he said, uh, there are two things that matter in politics. The first is money, and I can't remember the second. So, so it's, 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 it's the same thing. It's just, uh, it's just we're, 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 now, uh, we're now 100 years since then. So, so essentially, political scientists have done a bunch of work on this, and, and there, are, there are lots of descriptive statistics. I must caveat that. You know, here we have some data, but the data, again, are not ideal, so much more data is needed. And, and also, you know, the empirical work here is not the kind of, uh, you know, well-identified. We definitely know the causality, so, but it's very interesting correlation. So uh, Larry Bartels and, uh, and, and, a, and a bunch of other political scientists essentially took data on how senators uh, uh, or other politicians vote and uh, and... And, and looked at how their votes correlate with 
the opinions of their constituents from a number of surveys on exactly the same issue. So you can do this issue by issue, or you can do this overall, you know, are they voting more to the right, more to the left? And, and you sort of get the same picture, depend, independent of, of how you do it, that uh, at the end, at a correlational level, you know, regardless of whether you look at economic issues such as budget waiver, you know, minimum wage, budget rules, or you look at social issues such as, you know, civil rights, abortion, and so on, the way that senators vote is very highly correlated with what their high-income constituencies think. It's moderately uh, correlated with what their middle-income constituents think, where high-income is top one-third, middle-income is second one-third, and low-income is the bottom one-third, it's absolutely not correlated with what the low-income want. So on the basis of this, it's very difficult to see sort of how it is that, you know, American politicians are uh, responding to what their low-income constituents want. Okay, if you say it's not low-income, it's middle-income, even for a middle-income you know, they are, they, are, they are correlated with the middle income, but they are much, much less correlated with the middle income than they are co- correlated with the high income. So, so it's really... Uh, it's not it's so surprising. Really, sorry? It's not so surprising. So I don't, I don't think it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't think it's surprising. And, that's, and, and I think that's, uh, the reason for that is, is exactly the second piece of evidence that political scientists have, which is that, uh, which is, you know, I mean, this is, this is, this is part of it is just data, which is that there has been an explosion in political action committees and campaign financing and lobbying expenditures, both for the Congress and the federal branch, over the over the last 30, 35 years. And uh, and and there and 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 the press is full of anecdotal evidence that you know both parties, uh, politicians of both parties, have really had to change their positions uh, because of their concerns about fundraising. So when you take that into account, I think there's a good channel for why uh, politicians are going to be more correlated with their high-income constituents, because they want the money of the high-income constituents. Sure. I think it's true. Now, the question is, what limits that uh, desire to make your the people who give you money happy? And the answer right. is, uh, so, so, there's, yeah. there's political... There's, there's, it's although it's true that that poor people can't donate much money, they vote. Now they vote, they vote. at lo- they vote at lower rates than than high educated people, for example, yeah. and I assume for higher income people in general. But they still vote, and, and by definition, yeah. there's there's a lot of people below the median, about half of them. Uh, so it's it's um, they're not irrelevant. So no, absolutely, mo- they're not irrelevant. So let me come to that. But I think before we come to that, let's take stock. I mean, I think. If, if we're going to look at these two hypotheses of how politics matters, I think at face value, it's going to be, it's much more, it's, it's much less likely that, you know, the political system was responding to the con- discontent and, uh, and, uh, and the angst of the bottom, in the, especially in the 80s and the, 90, and the 1990s, than what the, what the top of the distribution 
wanted. So I think a story that works through lobbying and campaign contributions, and not only lobbying and campaign contributions, but just access to politicians and thus being able to, it's not just, you know, that you're buying the politicians. I think you're also influencing the politicians. And the best way of influencing the politicians is to talk to them. And having access, which is also, again, something that requires money, is very important in this process. I agree. So what limits that? I mean, I think, I think in general there are several things that limit it. First, I think the decency of politicians yep. is limited. Shame. And, Shame and matters. I think, and I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that all politicians have lack decency. Some they of don't. them do, some no. of them don't. Fair enough. Uh, but but I think we don't want to, you know, in economics, I think we are good at one thing. We don't just want to de- rely on the decency of people. We, wanna, we, wanna, we don't want to de- deny the decency of people, or we definitely don't want to condone indecent behavior. But we, we want to make sure that the incentives are right so that we don't have to rely on heroes. So, so we don't want, just want to rely on, on the decency of the politicians, and especially given the track record of some. But... Uh, second thing that limits that is political competition. If one party is veering to, the, to a particular position, then the other party can take a, a different position that's more attractive to the voters and, 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 deal, and, 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 and try to kind of get more votes. And I think that's where uh, Larry Bartels in his book, Unequal Democracy, sort of, and, and, and also a couple of other political scientists like... Uh, Hacker and Pearson make in, in, in the book Winner Take All Politics make the following argument, which I'm not sure how true, I mean, I don't think they back it up, but I think it's an interesting argument. That essentially what this sort of campaign finance pressure has really been quite decisive for Democrats. So Democrats who were supposed to take the opposite position to Republicans on, on some issues they sort of felt this campaign pressure, and they didn't take those positions. And I don't know how convincing this story is, but, but I think it may or may not be one reason why the political competition channel for checking this influence, the influence of money in politics, may not have worked as well as it should have. Well, let me, let me, give, you, let me give you three issues mm-hmm. where I think in every case, uh, there was a failure of political competition, and it's either because it's in the nature of human beings to to do what I'm going to suggest, or because there's just less competition, and then politicians can exploit that in ways that are not good for the rest of us. So, to, for my my story, which is not unrelated to yours, I sort of look at a combination of of Rajan and your story. Mm-hmm. So here's three issues. Issue number one. When a large financial institution is about to go uh, bankrupt, what should we do? And the answer since 1984 is almost always let the stockholders lose all their money and let the creditors, the bondholders, and the the lenders get all their money back, 100 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. That's the decision that we have consistently made. It has been a bipartisan, shockingly to me, a bipartisan consensus that that's always a good idea lest there be – Financial instability. So that's case number one. I agree with that entirely. Yes, that's been a big problem. Big problem. Case number two, is it a good idea for um, the homeownership in the United States to go up? Now, around the mid-90s, there was a huge push from both Democrats and Republicans, more Democrats. But when Republicans got more empowered, they pushed it too. 
that said we should try to increase the home ownership rate. Now, we can argue about Fannie and Freddie you do in your presentation. Let's put that to the side for the moment. What is true is that starting at, when this push was made, the home ownership rate in the United States started a steady increase, which in areas that were particularly supply constrained, that it was hard to build new houses, that resulted in large price increases. Who was in favor of that? Well, there were some sinister people in favor of it, or that's not the right word, people who had a self-interest in it. Those were people in the real estate business, people who built houses. It was also people who could profit from that. Those were people on Wall Street who could invent new uh, securities that would that would allow people to invest in those homes. It was also people who cared about the poor, people who, who – this is the Rajan argument. It was also people, the poor themselves, who hadn't had access to home ownership, people who felt that was unfair, that something – uh, unfair was going on, so they supported. So there was this beautiful consensus across party lines and across uh, interests of different sectors that this was good, basically. That it was, and it was cheap because there was no budgetary cost at the time. So those two, I thought, of, I forgot the third one, but those two decisions along. Oh, uh, the bailouts. So when, when we had a choice to funnel money directly into these institutions that had made bad investments, there was a again a bipartisan consensus. Not, oh, I'm helping my friends who are rich donors. Not, I'm helping my friends in the financial sector, but this is good for the country. People were able to convince themselves of that. If you want to give, them, give it a nice sheen, if you want to give it an ugly color, you can say they were helping their rich friends. But in those three cases, there was, there was no political competition. The only co- people who voiced dissent from that were people on the fringes of either the parties or, or outside the party structure who said, these are bad ideas. How could that recipe, those three things, fail to create disaster? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with, uh, with with much of what you've said. I mean, I think, uh, I think on the uh, uh, on the house ownership thing. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that you know, artificially inflating home ownership rates. Is and, and especially doing it through things such as such things as mortgage tax credit, which I think is just a really bad idea. Is a really distortionary form of increasing our taxes because we then give it back in a, in a distortionary form. I think that's uh, that's so I I agree with, uh, with 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 all of that. But the research that people have done, there's these two interesting papers by Neil Butta, uh, who is now at the Federal Reserve yep. Board, I believe. Yep. He, he's a yeah, he's a, he was a graduate student at MIT. So he finds he looks at uh, both the Community Reinvestment Act and the uh, and uh, the under underserved areas goal provision, which uh, which is kind of a key part of the GSE. Yeah, yeah, the the the, the kind of the GSE uh, process that kind of. Uh, Essentially, set goals for Fannie and Freddie to purchase a certain amount of mortgages in lower-income and minority uh, areas, and and what he finds is that they, those had very small effects. Yeah, I know. So, it's an interesting. So, it's a, two interesting papers. We'll see if they stand up, but they're provocative. Yeah, and I, I agree that I don't think the Community Reinvestment Act was decisive, uh, but we do have this fact. The fact is, the rate of home ownership in the United States, which had been stagnant. And this is where I think Rajan's thesis is relatively uh, maybe important in terms of political pressure. Although, again, I think there's an entrepreneurial side from the politicians yeah, as well. Yeah, the entrepreneurial side is much more important. So, I mean, the other thing that we didn't talk about uh, that, we, you know, that let me just uh, briefly briefly say is that, you know, uh, the, the timing is also a little strange for the Rajan hypothesis. 
So, I mean, of course, uh, you know, timing-based arguments are not all, are not easy. You can go around them by kind of invoking lags. long and variable yeah, lags. Yeah, lags are but, always good, yeah. <laughs> Foresight but, if you need to. People right, anticipated of course, of course. it. But if you look at the data, uh, you know, the big increase in inequality and both for the bottom, both between the 90th and the 10th and between the 90th and the 50th, is actually in the 1980s. Yeah. It's not, it's certainly not in the late 1990s. Actually, the late 1990s and the 2000s are yeah. remarkable because both the bottom and the middle of the income distribution are doing reasonably well. So you need the story that the inequality caused it 20 with a 20-year delay. It couldn't have been the increase in inequality in the 1990s because that was trivial or, in fact, you know, non-existent. It was the increase in inequality in the 80s and early 90s that caused it. So it's just took a while for it to build up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a long and variable yeah. delay. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't think that's important. I, I totally right. agree with you. So, so then coming back to the to the to the checking the uh, the the behavior of the politicians, I think the other thing is the media. I mean, I think the media is a key factor in making sure that when politicians take uh, positions that are very heavily influenced by. Uh, a small group or by campaign contributions or by lobbying, that this actually gets uh, uh, gets sort of uh, enough attention and, uh, and, 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 and there is reaction to it. You see, the problem is that, as, as, you, as you suggested and as the logic of democratic system is, the way that we correct politicians misbehaving is by <clears throat> voting. Yep. But what, do, what does the campaign contributions do? Campaign contributions enable the politicians to influence the vote in a very strong way. Yeah, do we have so good ev- like a vicious circle? Yeah. Do we have good evidence on that by the way? Uh, on what part? On the on the power of money to uh, influence elections. Uh, seems logical, question. right? Obviously people can buy more ads and at yeah. some level it's ob- it's overwhelming, right? Name yes. n- and and the other point I would, you know, I would mention is that Name recognition has benefited incumbents in recent years because yeah. of, I think, the lack of competition yeah. induced by yeah. uh, campaign finance reform. So I, there is a lot going on there. So, so I don't know of any convincing evidence that shows that uh, m- more money necess- has a causal effect. But it seems like plausible. But it seems <laughs> extremely plausible. We have we have uh, interesting evidence that having access to different information sources has an effect. Uh, so there's this interesting paper by uh, Stefano de Lavinia and Ethan Kaplan on the Fox News effect, kind of exploiting the fact that certain areas uh, got uh, Fox News cabled at different points, and they find a, a, a not a very, very large, but a sizable effect uh, of, uh, ha- you know, having access to Fox News on uh, uh, Republican presidential vote share. Uh, there is evidence from uh, Michael uh, the David, Str- uh, David Stromberg and Jim Snyder on how uh, politicians are responding to their media coverage. And uh, there's a very interesting paper kind of exploiting the fact that some politicians are in the coverage area of... Uh, of, uh, of of different states, so they don't get covered in the local news, and they behave very differently than 
than than than politicians uh, who are who are in the coverage area and therefore news about them are are in the uh, are, are 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 more easily available to their voters. And then uh, as a graduate student at MIT, Leopoldo Ferguson, who uh, uses the same strategy to look at how much. Uh, <coughs> how much the media counters the effect of lobbies, and he finds some uh, evidence consistent with, uh, with, with the fact that there is some interaction between uh, media, uh, media coverage and, 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 and politicians who are getting a lot of money, uh, especially a lot of money from some specific political action committees. So, so there is, there is some, some evidence building up that these things are important, but not enough at the moment to say exactly how we should design kind of uh, access to information and, uh, and, and, and so on, so to make sure that the democratic process works better. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, uh, again, I think it's, there's a great empirical opportunity here. Um, my simple test for w- whether it's money is important is how much time and energy politicians <laughs> devote to collecting it. They're, yeah, I mean, they're that's not exactly. stupid. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you know? exactly. so, so in they're to specialists. Your they're specialists. They know yeah, what they're so supposed to do. If it didn't matter, why are they <laughs> losing their uh, every waking hour on yeah. this? Yeah. yeah. So well, we're almost out of time. Talk about taking either your variation on Rajan's uh, um, thesis or, or some combination. What do you think we might do to make this better? Um, in particular, well, I think, I think, I think it's, it's it's very related to to the last set of issues we talked about. I think I, I'm not in favor of you know very big top down interventions. Uh, you know, I think we have to find ways of encouraging the existing political processes in the United States to work better. So it's about making sure that money politics doesn't become even worse in the United States. Media plays a better role in checking politicians. And I think, you know, some form of uh, campaign finance reform uh, would, would, would actually help, you know, even though I said I'm not in favor of big, <laughs> big intervention. I don't view that as a big intervention. In fact, we've gone in the other way. I mean, we've gone, we've gone in the other direction with, uh, with, the, with the recent uh, Citizens Be United uh, case that uh, you know uh, actually we we might have uh, undermined any kind of checks on uh, on campaign contributions that we have for for politicians and but 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 I think uh, I think we have to make sure that uh, the different parts of the population are involved in politics and are informed. Uh, to the ex- to the best extent that we can, uh, so that you know the political process, the democratic process, works as healthily as it can. Yeah, I I think uh, again I'm going to point to an empirical uh, argument. I think I think transparency is is, is hugely important. It's mm-hmm. true that you know, when the media uncovers a scandal or exposes something, it's not sufficient to to stop it, but it does. I think it has an effect. Here's an interesting question. You know. During the week before the weeks before the AIG bailout, Hank Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, talked to his successor at uh, Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, I think two or three dozen times. Now, I'd love to know what they talked about. I have a feeling – my joke is – I probably made it on the program before. I apologize to my listeners, but I don't think they were talking about their kids' summer vacations and what was going on, <laughs> right? So one just trivial idea – wouldn't it be interesting to know about 
who walks into a politician's office and who they talk to on the phone and for how long. You'd think that could be publicly available. It's not, of course, but you'd think requiring that would be a healthy thing. And, you know, I I just have to wonder, as you point out, access is so important. Why is it that in a world of campaign finance reform, uh, the CEO of Goldman Sachs or Bear Stearns or or Bank of America or Merrill Lynch – their ability to donate directly to a politician is extremely small. Why are they so popular? And one answer is they, of course, can direct the contributions of their employees. But it's an interesting question of what's actually happening on the ground. It would be great to get an expose written by an anonymous staffer about right. – That's a very interesting idea. I mean I think, I think in many of these cases, uh, you know, the – we are thinking we are we are talking about the influence that comes not only with money but it comes with expertise so it's it's another aspect of the problem but you know uh wall street has the sort of the monopoly on expertise perhaps even it has more of a monopoly that its own true expertise justifies on financial matters so when hank polson wants to get an idea about What's going to happen to the financial system? He calls, uh, you know, uh, Lloyd Blankfein or Jamie Dimon, and so. But what he's getting, of course, is not the uh, objective truth, <laughs> but truth either filtered through yeah. their perspective yeah. or truth somehow shaved through the on the side so that it actually fits the uh, uh, interests of their company. Yeah. So I think that's actually a very important part of the influence process. It's not directly lobbying. But but it's, it's it's the related thing that you know who has access is determined by who is the expert and the experts are of course the the rich and powerful and uh, and and the interested parties and uh, and and the, and the policymakers are just listening to these experts uh, especially during critical periods. Yeah, the cheerful version of this, of course, is that the glass is is half full. Just think how few people are able to exploit that connection, right? The average yeah. American and even many people, as you point out, who are CEOs in many industries actually have to make a living and uh, can't steer things and have any input like that. So maybe we should be grateful it's only the financial sector that's got this power. Right. That's, that's the other <laughs> – I mean, I, I actually totally agree with that. I mean, I think I think there are really important issues here to watch out for. And 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 and, and I think the U.S. finance yes, political system has shown to use Ragu's term fault lines of its own in this process. But on the whole, I'm still an optimist that you know U.S. still has some of the strongest institutions in the world, and uh, and 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 so far, you know, the extent of overt corruption has been limited. Uh, you know, politicians, you know, there has been a revolving door policy, especially in the lobbying side that I find very, very distasteful, but yeah. few politicians have used their power to enrich themselves. And and I was, you know, I was also pleasantly surprised by, for example, the, uh, the way that, you know, the several commissions uh, recently have come up with sensible proposals about, you know, how to tackle the budget deficits and so on. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, of course, it didn't receive overwhelming support from uh, the Obama administration, and it didn't receive bipartisan support, and so on. But, but still, you Surely. know, the political system is not stuck, and it's not. 
it's not in the pocket of just one group or another and and and, and i think i'm i'm an optimist that you know we'll we'll come out of this and uh, with with a few scars rather than you know uh all of our limbs broken my guest today has been Darren Esamoglu. Darren, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.